Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, brands like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's respond to criticism about racist advertising. Meanwhile, K-pop fandoms take to Twitter and TikTok fighting white supremacy through social media. And movies like The Help and Hamilton are taking streaming services by storm, but face a new wave of criticism for downplaying racism and representation. How is the racial reckoning influencing pop culture? It's our Pop Culture Roundtable. Later in the show, two local women of color are leading the fight against COVID-19 and racial violence. It's like you live here, so you have stake in what happens here, and and you watch these same disparities affect you and your family. It's exhausting some days, but I'm a mom of six, and so every day I get up with the thought process that whatever I go out here and advocate for is going to benefit my children in one way or another. How they have mastered the art of organizing their neighbors, demanding the attention of legislators, and reforming their communities. But first, joining me to discuss the latest pop culture news, Rachel Rubin, professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Welcome back, Rachel. Hi, Callie. And also with me, for the first time, Sam Summers, chair of the Department of Psychology at Tufts University and professor of social psychology. Hi, Sam. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Well, let's jump right in. Hot off the presses, the announcement that Michelle Obama has a podcast, and it'll be called the Michelle Obama Podcast. (laughs) So (laughs) there's no confusion about it. It's uh, going to be a Spotify product, uh, but it's in partnership with the Obama's production company known as Higher Ground. People may remember that Higher Ground won an Oscar for their documentary, The American Factory, not long ago. Anyway, it will premiere on July 29th, and it is going to have her in the role of interviewer, talking with family and friends about the relationships that are most important, those that shape you, those that help us reflect on ourselves, so says the blurb. That's all we know. So let's just get reaction from the both of you. Rachel, what about the Michelle Obama podcast? Um, I'm kind of interested to hear about it. I don't know what she's going to focus on, but I really hope that what she does is use the podcast to look into people's like personal lives, but in a way that shows, um, you know, as they used to say in the 70s, that the personal is political. Um, I think that it's like a really good opportunity. She'll have a very broad platform. You know, I'm, I'm, I grew up in Baltimore and, well, I went to the last public all-girls high school in the country. So all of the girls I went to high school with are just sort of hero-worshipping of Michelle Obama. And I want her to, like, use this as a way to start conversations. Um, Sam, her book, Becoming, I believe has topped the list of the number one best-selling nonfiction book ever or somewhere in that category. Uh, It sold beyond billions worldwide. So she has quite the platform. She now even more than she had as as a former first lady. What do you think this is all about, Michelle Obama having a podcast? I mean, she's been on a tour, but she hasn't really wanted to talk about herself or her life beyond what was in the book. 
Right. That's the, the interesting question, right? There's always the, the demands on, oh, uh, will Michelle Obama run for office? Uh, will, will Michelle Obama continue her public life as an elected official? And she's been pretty consistent that that's not in her, in her plans. But, uh, you know, we live in a society now where she has the potential to reach arguably even more people in different ways by writing a best-selling book, by having a podcast that who knows how many uh, people tune into on a regular basis. So it'll be fascinating to see what she uses that platform for. Will she be the impartial and uh, uh, sort of neutral interviewer of others uh, to, to highlight uh, what the work that other people are doing in a variety of different domains in, in society? Or will we be hearing more about her personal attitudes and personal aspirations and plans and priorities through the podcast? I assume some of both. It's uh, intriguing. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I think it's especially intriguing and interesting because um, of this moment in time. Uh, again, the podcast is scheduled to start July 29th. That's just a little bit from now. So she's coming in right in the middle of a pandemic and all of the crises around that and also in the middle of this racial reckoning, which has had uh, quite a bit of impact on pop culture. It'll be fascinating to see if she responds to the moment in addition to whatever she has to say in conversation with the folks on the show. One of the things that has become apparent as people are going and trying to grapple with the racial reckoning and trying to get more information, been all kinds of suggestions about what kinds of stuff to watch, to read. And it's been interesting that two films uh, that have risen to the top, one of them is called The Help. I would not have... Uh, pick this one as something to be at all informative for people in this moment. But yet, um, apparently, it's been viewed by many, many people. I should mention that Bryce Dallas Howard, who starred in The Help along with Viola Davis, and who played a character, one of whose maids were involved um, in the story, now has come out and said she would not recommend The Help as a film for people to watch in this moment. Having said that, it, it's out there. People are watching it, and a lot of people are watching it. So Viola Davis, who played the lead character, Abilene Clark, a black maid living in Jackson, Mississippi. If people don't know, this is a story about the maids, ostensibly. She said now that um, she is not so certain that, this, that, that the role and the story was what she should have been doing. Here's Viola Davis acting in the movie The Help. The 2011 movie became Netflix's most-watched movie amid the Black Lives Matter protests in June. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. You is smart. You is kind. You is important. Viola Davis acting in The Help. Rachel, my teeth go on edge every time I see or hear that. Oh, How about you? My teeth go on edge, too. Um, and it is like, you know, it's it's like stitched into a really long American movie history. People still talk about Gone with the Wind, um, you know, and Hattie McDaniel was also even, it came out in 1939, and even at that time, she expressed some pain at having to play Mammy. Um, and I do think that we should move past this. Trump has been saying, you know, keep watching Gone with the Wind. But... Um, that said, it's, I think it's really, really admirable that Viola Davis is using the attention she got on um, Vanity Fair to 
criticize the character. You're right that right now we're having this conversation and it, it took us a long time to start like condemning it this broadly. Like I know when it came out, there were a lot of people who were upset about it. Um, but I'm very, very glad that Viola Davis, you know, was photographed on the cover of Vanity Fair by the, by the first, you know, black photog cover photographer and that she used this um, as a way to say that the movie is not acceptable. Um, and I don't know if this is true, but it's been circulating that they posed her on the cover of Vanity to match the photograph of a slave with multiple whip marks on his back. And so, like, that mm. is a really good connection to make. That sort mm. of, you know, racialized hiring of house people with, um, you know, abused slaves. I had not heard that. Uh, but Sam, she said specifically in um, Vanity Fair, there's a part of me that feels like I betrayed myself and my people because I was in a movie that wasn't ready to tell the whole truth and added that the drama was created in the filter and cesspool of systemic racism. So listen, you are a social psychologist. Why are people drawn to this? Why do you think? Was it curiosity? Was it it was all that was out there they thought spoke to this moment? Or did it assuage um, some old tropes that we've been carrying around or confirm them, I guess? And people thought, oh, well, OK, that's that's what I understood to be the truth. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I'm a social psychologist. I'm, I'm also I'm also a white guy talking about this. And I, and, and I think that that there is, yes, we're in an era where there are a lot of white Americans who are suddenly showing a renewed interest in paying attention to and learning about uh, racism and uh, disparity and, and, and the power dynamic and the, just the really terrible history that this country has with regard to racism and other forms of discrimination. But I'm not sure that all our average white Americans are all the way there and ready to, to delve in and get the whole story. It's, it's uh, a little bit of the story seems appealing, like the help version, like the green book version of the story, like the feel good, I can take something out of this and be a good person by learning about this, uh, but not necessarily confront the ways in which we have all been complicit in this system. We've all benefited from this system in different ways. And, and so it is a very complicated issue. And I, I guess I would rather have people watching The Help than watching, say, Crash, which won Best Picture horribly uh, years mm. earlier. But it's mm. these are not nuanced um, depictions of uh, racial dynamics, right? They are not uh, stories that are centering the experience. And I mean, the question we have to ask is, is, is okay, is this a story worth telling? Perhaps we could argue that it is, but how is it being told and should this have the priority? Are there other stories out there we should be hearing about that people aren't exposing themselves to? Uh, I think that's really the big question. Yeah, and I want to add that the Gone with the Wind replaying that's going to be happening or is happening now, now comes with a very detailed uh, critique and uh, deconstruction by a, yes. uh, a um, film critic as well as someone who is familiar with the history so that it plays in context. Now, listen, I, I, it doesn't do anything for me even with that, but I think that's incredibly important and um, maybe... That would have helped with this. I don't know. Oh, it's great progress. It's great progress. Yes, it is. Because people can really understand through the expert exactly how to look at what they're seeing on the screen. Is It's just not a story about Scarlet and some happy enslaved people. Moving on, in the same context, uh, the cast of Hamilton, and more specifically Lin-Manuel, have been criticized now that people could see Hamilton because it debuted on Disney+. Plus, So lots of people could see it 
who before could not because the tickets were pricey and mostly in New York or on tour. And some people were unhappy saying, okay, you're portraying these founders and we don't have enough of the context that they were uh, slave owners, that, you know, so much of their wealth was about it. Having seen the program a couple of times, that definitely is in the play. But Lin-Manuel responded to it. But before we uh, talk about his response, let's take a listen to the cast of Hamilton performing for the Obamas at the White House back in 2016. Got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a lot smarter by being a self-starter by 14. They placed him in charge of a trading charter. And every day while slaves were being slaughtered and carted away across the waves, he struggled and kept his guard up. Inside, he was longing for something to be a part of. The brother was ready to beg, steal, borrow, or barter. So that's the power of that production. It's it's pretty well done, as I think most people will agree. Um, I I give uh, Lin Manuel Sam Summers a lot of credit for responding. He said, "Hey, there's some stuff. This is a very complex story. We wish we could have put more into it. We did as much as we could, but I take the weight for uh, not getting as much." more into it, even more as I could. Um, but, you know, it's a musical. Here's 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 what we can do. And I should add that uh, Annette Gordon-Reed, who is a historian of some note, said, hey, this is a musical. It's not history per se. It's some history. So we should think about that. Your response. Yeah, I'll, I'll co-sign. I mean, the how, how refreshing is it to hear a uh, a, a person of note, a, a celebrity saying, yeah, this is complex and, and, and you could fault me here and I have some fault to bear. I mean, that's such a refreshing way to hear people talk about important issues in, in, in public today. It doesn't seem like it happens often enough. Uh, I thought his, his response was very honest. I thought he said it's all out there and it's fair game. And, and, and yeah, I, I probably could have done better and could have done more in some areas. And I'm proud of what we were able to do in other respects. Is it worth it to, for Hamilton to be quote unquote canceled by people who are uh, who are feeling like they didn't that he didn't do enough now? And he said we we did as much as we could, but we, there was probably more that we could have done. Is it fair to be canceled? Uh, no, it doesn't seem fair to be canceled. We're going to cancel the 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 musical with the the most diverse. Uh, cast in, in recent memory that has launched the career of all of these uh, musicians and actors and, 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 and you know, thespians uh, of color and, and, and launched their careers in different ways. I don't think we're going to, to be canceling it. And, and, and the phrase cancel, you know, gets used quite a bit these days. But, but uh, you know, Callie, I find it very refreshing that he's willing to be so honest about the, the, the legitimate criticism of what he's done and, and to think through the complexities of it. N- no one's going to cancel this musical. People are going to sign up for Disney Plus just so they can watch watch it. Um, but I think the fact that we're talking these things through and having an intelligent, nuanced conversation about it is testament to, to what he and everyone associated with the show has accomplished. Rachel, you agree? I kind of agree. I mean, I feel like he did. He responded well, not angrily. And it's not surprising that racial questions are being raised right now. 
Um, you know, there's like two main reasons I think that have upped it, which is that there's been so much attention to police violence and then the coronavirus is especially affecting African-Americans. Um, for me, like this, this like causes a sort of sentimental reaction because in college I was involved with an anti-South African apartheid movement that wanted my university, which was Columbia University in New York, to divest from companies doing business in South Africa. And we took over a building for a month slept in front of it, changed its door shut. Um, and the building was named after Hamilton. And like at the time, we wanted it to be renamed after Nelson Mandela. <laughs> so mm. I'm very happy that people are raising this. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have gone anyway because I don't like musicals that much. But um, I, I think that, you know, it, it does show that, um, you know, culture plays roles on many levels. And it's interesting because, like, the songs seem fine when taken out of context, a lot of them, you know. But, like, the play itself, it kind of does, like, legitimize people who were slave owners. Yeah, it is complex in this instance because, to Sam's point, as you're looking at it, you are looking at people of color portraying the founder. So right away, you know, there's... It's a whole different presentation of, of what went on. And so many of the lines sung and said have a different kind of meaning deliberately on Lin-Manuel's part uh, because because of that. So it's fascinating. Um, and as I always say, the, my only concern in, in these instances is that this will be the only history that some people will get. Like other people went true. to the musical, then went back, read the book, then looked up more things. And so then their context was there. So I think that Lin-Manuel is aware of that and was responding in kind, saying, gee, if we could have put more in there, we could have. Because we know that people are going to walk away saying, well, that, that was it. That was the history. And right. it, it simply is not, you know. So I appreciate that. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with our pop culture roundtable guests, Rachel Rubin of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Sam Summers of Tufts University. Uh, let me move on to the K-pop fandom, which is really interesting to me. Uh, some people may not even be aware of uh, the K-pop groups. Um, they're very, very popular uh, here in the United States and worldwide, for that matter. And they sort of did a, a mashup where they united to take over a White Lives Matter hashtag, but as a way of pushing back against what you would think that would mean. Um, and their effort was to say uh, Black Lives Matter, for one thing, and that um, we are trying to cause confusion on this White Lives Matter site because uh, we disagree with this. Uh, Sam, what about this? It's innovative. It's an interesting use of social media that we've not seen. And it also mashes up uh, the musical culture in a way that I don't think people... I wasn't prepared for a K-pop to be political, frankly. So let me put it that way. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a surprising uh, uh, a couple of weeks where, where, where K-pop, uh, a genre which I will admit is not at the top of my playlist necessarily, is being uh, is sort of giving credit for disrupting uh, this this movement on Twitter for for wreaking havoc with Donald Trump's Tulsa rally in terms of reserving tickets, and it's a fascinating demonstration of just how powerful, obviously, social media can can become, and and how uh, individuals' voices can be multiplied uh, exponentially. I mean, it it is sort of a feel good story when you read about it and you see how it was used. I will admit there is a voice in the back of my head saying, um, you know, I've been a fan of various celebrities, athletes 
for a long time and you know, when they do the right thing, that's great. But what happens when someone with a tremendous following marshals their 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 minions to to do something towards an end that I don't agree with? And so there is a little voice in the back of my head that that is concerned about the power that uh, social media bestows upon, uh, in this case, legions of fans of a particular genre of music. But it is hard to do anything other than to feel sort of pretty good about the exercise in democracy here in this example. Hmm. Rachel, you're a big music person. What do you think about this? Well, um, yeah, I'm delighted with these guys. And I, 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 yes, they did book seats at the Trump rally, too. But I, I think that one of the things that's like really important to notice here is that it shows that like fandom is not necessarily directed by the figures who the groups are fans of. So in this case, it's like the young people themselves um, who sort of took it on. And, you know, it is the, the fandom of K-pop is fascinating to me anyway, because it like I, I have noticed that it sort of reaches across like various groups of people. And so, you know, this is good. This is like evidence that, you know, meeting is created in multiple places. And it's not like, you know, K-pop bands have been making statements like this. Well, also in this moment of racial reckoning where all things are being examined and even K-pop stars are, are getting involved in their own way, some of the brands that we have come to know that are very familiar to consumers, who many have no idea of the resonance to certainly the times of enslavement and other racist uh, connections, these companies are responding to this moment. Now, this is these are they've been long criticized uh, for the branding, but nothing happened. But in this moment, they did. Before I get the two of you to respond to this moment of change or apparent change, because we haven't seen it all happen just yet, let's take a listen to some of the advertisements from brands like Aunt Jemima, Eskimo Pie, and Uncle Ben's. Smile and happy Aunt Jemima, famous for those secret recipe pancakes, waffles, and buckwheat. Have you got a tantalizing tantalizing old plantation saying for us today, Aunt Jemima? Yes, sir. One that's especially good these days. America's most famous ice cream treat, Eskimo pie. Creamy, delicious ice cream. Uncle Ben's new five-minute rice and gravy. Things are really cooking at Uncle Ben's. All right, Sam. So for those people who don't know, uh, Uncle Ben's and Aunt Jemima are direct references to names used um, for certain enslaved people during the time of of slavery. Um, and that, I mean, that's just direct. They would call older women and older men by those names. They, you can't even call them honorifics, but they were sort of a, an interesting title. Whether or not that was their name, of course it wasn't. Uh, and with regard to Eskimo pie, that is a slur against people who live in Alaska and who are Inuit. And we could also put Land of Lakes in this group as well. That happened before this moment where there was um, movement to change the presentation of Native Americans on that butter. So why do you think it's happening now? And and what do you think about um, the movement to change the names? We don't know what some of these names will be changed to, by the way, Sam. Just just wondering. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you, you raise a really important point, an aspect of all this, Callie, which is that I'm not sure everyone is aware of 
um, the, these histories and these legacies. Yes, when you hear some a, a previous advertising uh, campaign using very stereotypical portrayals of a spokesperson, that's one thing. But I don't think your average young person today who uh, you know is using Aunt Jemima or Uncle Ben's rice knows about what you were just discussing that it has to do with uh, a, a title that you might use as a white person for uh, a, a black person who you don't want to give the respect of a Mr. or a Mrs. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. So I think this is bringing that all to bear, which I think is really important. Uh, the question of why it's happening now, I mean, there's the the, the direct answer, of course, of, of Black Lives Matter and reckoning with uh, police and state-sponsored sanctioned violence, but it's fascinating, really, how widespread this is, right? This is spreading to the question of Eskimo pie. This is spreading to the question of Native American nicknames on professional sports teams. And after years and decades of saying, you know, I own the Washington football team and we will never, ever put in all caps, never change the name, um, within, a, within a month, FedEx says you're going to change the name or, or we're out of the stadium and they change the name. And so what's really fascinating to me is just the the breadth at which this is spreading. And this is not simply just talking about the depiction of black individuals in, in popular media and in commercial advertising, but, but it's spreading to a variety of ways of making us rethink um, the kinds of nicknames and terminology that we use across a variety of different domains. Rachel? Uh, yeah, no, this is and this has been something I've taken up for years because, you know, ever since I've been at, at UMass Boston, I teach a introductory pop culture class and I have an assignment where students have to go to the supermarket and buy a product that, you know, negatively portrays a group of people. And it is you're right. They like they hadn't noticed it at first. They almost always come back completely worked up Um and, you know, I must admit that it has demonstrated that there are still so many um, brands that use negative images of different groups of people. Um, but this is a just it's a good start. It's a, just a start, but it's a really good start. Mm. Yeah, it's not going to be, I mean, trying to come up with uh, something that uh, they feel they don't, they didn't lose because of having years and years, well, decades of ingraining in people's minds these images. And now to try to find something that, that speaks to that, whatever they were trying to get people to speak to, it's, it's going to be interesting. All right, I want to switch topics to nostalgia. Again, Sam, this may be your wheelhouse about, you know, why people are into it. But goodness gracious, the Empire Strikes Back last weekend became the highest grossing number one film. The Empire Strikes Back, for people who may not have even been born when it was first uh, released, was 1980. It's part of the series of uh, Star Wars uh, movies. They took in in a three-day weekend between 400 and a low $500 million. That's amazing. Uh, why? What's 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 yeah. happening? That people there are new there are plenty of new films out. What what was the attraction about the Empire Strikes Back, Sam? Yeah, well, I mean, one easy answer, Kelly, is it's it's only like the greatest movie of all time. But oh, well, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. no, but I mean, <laughs> I, I think just the, the the nostalgia for for Star Wars and nostalgia more generally. I, one can see why we might be in an era right now where some nostalgia is in order. Uh, now, yes, we are talking uh, in this entire segment, right, about some of the the, pro the problems and, and injustices of the past that we're maybe finally starting to take little steps towards towards remedying. But we're also in the midst of this crisis and in the midst of uh, everything being turned upside down. One can see where the appeal of, of the movie that one you know I, I used to like to watch when I was a kid. Uh, this is out again. That's a, that's an era I'd like to sort of be back in for. 
two and a half hours, at least for a brief period of time. It's also probably a pretty drive-through uh, movie, drive-in movie-friendly uh, production, and maybe some people are partaking of it outside. But but I guess I go back to from a psychological standpoint. This is a time of great uncertainty. It's a time of threat. And things that are comfortable, things that are familiar can be the source of some solace here. And uh, this is part of my personal bias, but there's little that's more solace producing for me than the sound of you know, lightsabers and Jedis and all that George Lucas, John Williams universe. And so I guess there are a fair number of people out there who are cut from the same cloth. Hmm. Rachel. Yeah, I, I remember when these movies came out and the, at the time they were exciting because they were like breaking new you know, ground film-wise. And um, so I, I am also kind of baffled by why they're so appealing now. <laughs> like, is it because people want to get out of their houses? Does the movie still seem compelling? You know, is it just people who were like old enough to have gone when it first came out? Like, do you know that? I don't think so, because the numbers are too high. So yeah, it appears right. to have cut across uh, demographics. Yeah, I will tell you, there is a certain je ne sais quoi to the Star Wars movies. It, I was on a family vacation with my kids who are now teenagers, but my older daughter was four, and the trash compactor scene from the original one came on, and she was mesmerized. And as stilted as the acting is, and as now outdated as the special effects are, there is something very human and very appealing about the story of those original movies that still seems to resonate with people, despite the fact that when you watch it now, it does look even more dated than Lucas wanted it to look from the sort of retro science fiction standpoint. So there is something about those movies that that guy knew what he was doing. Okay. Um, now, speaking of nostalgia, there is a Wonder Years reboot that's in the works, uh, this time with a black family. People may know the Wonder Years series that uh, starred Fred Savage. He's very much grown now. He was a kid at the time. Uh, the show's time period was between 1968 and 1973. They're redoing it with a black middle class family in Montgomery, Alabama during the same time, which obviously means there would be uh, different issues happening for that family. What's interesting about this uh, piece is that Fred Savage, who starred in the original series, is directing the pilot and executive producing, and Lee Daniels, a people may know of the feature film The Butler, but also of the series Empire and many, many other productions, is also working uh, with him. What do y'all think about this? Rachel? I think this is a really, really good gesture, as long as the show, you know, works not to, to convey that the Black experience is not similar to the white one, you know, especially since this is set rather far back. So, you know, it will, I think that they will want to sort of invoke the original um, at times, but I think that, you know, making it be sort of parallel and yet, like, strikingly different, I think that would be extremely useful. Sam? Yeah, I can't wait, actually, Kelly. I mean, I, I, I watched this show. I watched this show with great embarrassment because I was the same age as Kevin Arnold when this was on, and my parents were in the room, and I didn't want to watch this show about coming of age and puberty and all that. And, and I can't wait because it's not just a, a needless reboot of a classic, but it seems like it has, again, Rachel's right, it has the potential, it has the potential to go wrong, but it has the potential to be very different and to be fascinating. I'll tell you, for me, where it's all going to start, it's going to be the opening strains of whatever song they pick to be the, the theme song. Because mm. we had the Joe Cocker, you know, cover of the, you know, the Beatles, Get By With A Little Help From My Friends. And that's sort of, you think of that when you think of that show, they're one and the same. And you think of Daniel Stern's narration. And, and when we start to, I assume maybe we'll get a narrator looking back and his voice. And then, I don't know, we're going to get Marvin Gaye or who are we going to get? We're going to get something that's going to be different. It needs to be different and set the tone. And, and I'm excited to see what that'll be. And just to put a button on this, the 
there was a remake of One Day at a Time, and it's fantastic because they totally redid. They did the redid the music, the casting, the the bones of the story are there in, in terms of you know the same kinds of characters, but the mm-hmm. storyline totally immersed in this uh, Latinx family's life and culture and brilliantly done. And with the blessing of Norman Lear, who created the older one. So it can happen and, and be done well. Um, we, we just have to see what ha- is going to happen in this case. I should note in the same breath that the only Latinx show that was on net- network TV at this moment, network TV, because uh, One Day at a Time is on a, uh, a channel known as Pop, uh, the Baker and the Beauty was canceled from ABC, which means there are no Latinx shows on network TV. Given the demographics, the time, um, it seems a little crazy. Let me just play a clip from the series so people know what we're talking about. Here's a clip from the ABC show The Baker and the Beauty. You pushed for this renovation and pushed and pushed and pushed. You wanted to move forward just as much as I No. Did. Yes, you did. What I wanted was for you to be happy. I was fine with what we had. You wanted more. And now we can lose everything. You can do whatever you want to do, Rafael. But we are having this quinceanera, and I am making the decision because it's the only one to make. So the show was great. Uh, it had a little story about uh, the ordinary, you know, family, like as portrayed there, who owned a bakery, whose son gets involved with a with a high profile model, and his life turns up upside down. Hence, the baker and the beauty. And it was great because you had an opportunity to talk about culture, uh, particularly in Miami, but you also had a chance to just have a real fun rom-com. And it is a shame that there are no more at this moment. Sam. Yeah, uh, you know, one step forward, one step back. So we're not long ago celebrating the the summer of uh, Crazy Rich Asians and uh, to, to all the boys I've loved before and the the expanded roles for uh, Asian Americans in, in in American media. And now here we're talking about there being no no shows left on network TV with with Latinx performers or with a focus on on those types of families. And it's got to speak to uh, the the relative lack of diversity in terms of who's writing these shows and running these shows and directing and producing and um, one can only hope that we look back on this as well as a blip on the radar or at least a, 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 a nadir from which we you know, move to a much more expansive and representative depiction because those things matter. Like who you see on television and the movies and, 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 and who you see on the news, those, those things make a difference. Um, yes, when you're little, but also when you, you're older. The, the representation matters. Rachel? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I also feel like, you know, one one of the things that first came to my mind when I saw this was there was only one. Like they're really yeah. even having just one wasn't enough. I'm kind of at a loss for words, especially in our current moment, because there's like so much social conversation about, you know, immigration and little kids in cages. And like, why? Why are we erasing these people? I agree. So I'm. I'm going to conclude in this way. Um, Thank you all for talking to me. Just want to note that Tyra Banks has been tapped as the new Dancing with the Stars host. Why to pay attention to that? Because the longtime host, Tom Bergeron, and then Aaron Andrews were kicked out so that she could take over hosting. But the important thing to remember, vis-a-vis this conversation about who makes the decisions, she is also an executive producer, which is really quite something for a network show with some longevity. So we'll be looking to see what that means in terms of the show and its presentation. I thank you both for joining me. Thanks, Callie. 
Thank you. Rachel Rubin is professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and Sam Summers is the chair of the Department of Psychology at Tufts University and professor of social psychology. Coming up, our communities are grappling with two crises, COVID-19 and a racial reckoning sparked by systemic racism. And two local women of color, veteran organizers, have once again stepped up to the plate to meet the challenge of these times. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. Ordinary people, when they are working together, can do extraordinary things. That's former President Barack Obama talking about his time as a Chicago community organizer, an experience he said shaped his political worldview. His time working in poor communities there was relatively short compared to the deep-rooted experience of our two guests. In Chelsea, where COVID-19 infections are some of the highest in the state, one has been leading for more than 30 years. My name is Gladys Vega. I'm the executive director of the Chelsea Collaborative. Please continue to remain healthy, take care of yourself, and know that if you get the virus, we all get it, okay? For the other, violence in some Boston communities is personal. She has a long history of leading community protests. Meet Monica Cannon Grant. I'm a black woman, first and foremost. Living in Roxbury, standing in Roxbury, holding Roxbury on my back. And we want to send a clear message that you don't get to come in the city of Boston with your hatred. That's not what we stand for. With years of organizing and pushing behind them, these two local women of color have helped raise their communities up in times of crisis. And they join me now remotely. Gladys Vega, Executive Director of the Chelsea Collaborative. Welcome, Gladys. Thank you so much for having me in your show today. I'm glad to have you. And Monica Cannon-Grant, Boston activist and founder of the organization Violence in Boston. Hi, Monica. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Listen, both of you, uh, names at this point may be known because uh, we are in a situation where so much is going on. But I don't think a lot of people know exactly what you do and, more importantly, why you do it. So, Gladys, let me start with you. You started at the Chelsea Collaborative, my goodness, when you were 21 years old. What drew you to it? Why, why was this work so important to you? So I think I began at the age of 21 at the reception understanding the problems that were happening in our community and seeing that nobody was addressing them. So I kept transforming this nonprofit organization to a community grassroots organization that listens to the concerns of the people. So I think it was my passion and compassion. I have unconditional love for people. So I think that's what made me transform this organization. Monica, when you decided to form the nonprofit Violence in Boston, you were on your way to becoming a nurse, really, before you started this work. And then your son was almost killed, and that changed the entire trajectory of your life um, and focus. Uh, talk about it. Yeah, so I was in college, um, did three years for nursing, and that was the course I was on. Um, and then one evening, I picked my son up from work and someone put a gun to his head while I was standing next to him and pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed. 
Um, after that, we had about 15 shootings on my street that summer. And my house ended up being a crime scene. Another young man was shot on my doorstep. And at that point, I had enough. And I tell a lot of people I didn't, I didn't choose to become an activist. I had no choice. Well, now that both of you are, you know, in the thick of it, and I mean you're both in the thick of it, Gladys, uh, what you started out uh, doing for the Chelsea Collaborative, uh, the social justice work that you were doing then, in this moment, because of what's happening with the COVID-19 spread and Chelsea being a hotspot, you have had to turn your organization into a food pantry. I don't think people really understand how much uh, food you've distributed in the time of, uh, since March, really. Give us a sense of just how big the problem is. Sure. So we began March 5th. We began in the porch of my house. That night, we only distributed 250 boxes of food within 45, 50 minutes. And I was like, oh, my God, I was devastated. And I said, I cannot stop doing this. So from there, we began finding out from people in the streets how much they needed food. And then we began these food pantries, and I began to ask people for donations. And then we came to the Chelsea Collaborative. We have 7,000 square feet of space here, and we probably deliver food to 389 COVID-19 victims. And we gave food at the biggest peak of the pandemic to 11,000 community residents in one week. 11,000 community residents. And right now, we've been doing approximately 7,000 boxes of food and diapers on Wednesday, and we're still doing it on a regular, regular basis. Today, if you were to be in my office, you will find 30 volunteers preparing um, boxes right now as we speak to the community members that are coming tonight here. So... Um, what's interesting, uh, Monica, is that at least Gladys could start it with a base of an organization, even though it's shocking the numbers and the amount of work that she's been doing since this pandemic hit and since Chelsea has been hit so hard because of uh, a lot of inequities that we'll talk about in a second. But you were by yourself. I mean, and you're the CEO, the founder, that's and the organization and just decided, OK, somebody's got to be out front here saying some things that needed to be said about the systemic racism, about the policing, all of that. And suddenly now you are in the middle of this racial reckoning. How has this helped or maybe it hasn't helped? Tell me what it's done then to to really highlight the work that you've been doing and make people understand how important it is. Well, before I got to the point where I was organizing the protests, the week before they closed Boston Public Schools, we started feeding the community. I called my brother who owns Food for the Soul Restaurant, and I said, hey, they're about to close Boston Public Schools. How are these kids going to eat? Because we have over 5,000 or more kids who live in shelters or homeless and, and can't eat. And so... We started feeding the community. He asked me, how much are we going to feed on the first day? And I was like, about 250 kids. First day, we fed 850. We did it for 12 weeks, and we fed 80,000 people through grassroots fundraising out of his restaurant. And then in the midst of that, George Floyd was killed. Rashad Brooks was killed. Ahmaud Arbery was killed. Breonna Taylor was killed. And I was like, okay, so... I got to shift gears. In 2017, I had organized 45,000 in response to Charlottesville. So um, it wasn't new territory for me to be able to jump in and organize people around uh, Black people being murdered at the hands of police officers across the country. It's just something was different this time in the way that Black people were responding. I think that we've been in a war for a long time that we just didn't show up for. And we've gotten to the point where we're like, okay, you done hit me a couple of times. Now I'm going to hit you back. And so 
June 2nd, organized 55,000 people in Boston, one of the only peaceful protests in response to George Floyd being murdered and Breonna Taylor being murdered, as well as our local people, Burrell Ramsey and Terrence Coleman. And so it's just a different feel. I've been saying to people, if you ever wondered what it felt like to be in a civil rights movement, welcome, because Waking up Black right now is exhausting. I think we're picking which fight to jump in. It, they're, they're making budget cuts simultaneously as we're saying, can you stop killing us? Um, we have a governor who decided to give police departments between a thousand and five thousand dollar incentive to do things that they should be already doing as trained individuals. And it's just been constant slaps in the face. It's exhausting some days, but I'm a mom of six. And so every day I'd get up with the thought process that whatever I go out here and advocate for is going to benefit my children in one way or another. Is that what drives you, Monica? Because, you know, I, people want to know why. Well, how can you two, you know, keep up this pace? And I know it's personal at a level, but but there's more there. Oh, yeah. When you recognize that the issues are man-made. Um, which means they can be changed. And then there, there are people who are willfully not changing them. It, it builds frustration. I think you have to have a heart for this work. I think for a lot of us, it's like you live here. So you have stake in what happens here. And, and you watch these same disparities affect you and your family. The best people to help to tell you how to get your light bill paid is someone who was unable to pay their bill. The best person to tell you how to get a food resource is the person who didn't have food and had to get that resource. And so my congresswoman likes to say the people closest to the pain should be the ones solving the problem. And I, and I agree with that because we know how to help our people. We know what the disparities are on the ground. We know what kind of help they need. We just need the money and the resources to be able to do so. That's Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Um, Gladys Vega, let me pick up on what Monica Cannon-Granit said, because you've been saying that one of the things that really has gotten to you is that these are poor people helping other poor people. Because when the the problem was first illuminated about how much hunger was going on, what was the impact of people losing their jobs during the pandemic? You know, there was, you didn't have any funds. You That came later. So, so the people in the community tried to do whatever they could. Yes, I tell you that it was desperate times. I cried. I never forget April 9 when it was raining. And I have made a, a, a commitment of giving food to 250 people that were in line. The promise was made that a truck was going to be coming, and the truck didn't come. And I was desperate, and people were getting wet. And a guy told me, listen, miss, I cannot go back home because I have my mother-in-law, my wife, and my two children waiting for food, and there's nothing for me to take home, and I have no money. I've been unemployed for a month already, and nobody else but me was used to work. So I was devastated. I kneeled down. I believe in God, but I'm not a church goer. And I kneeled down and I prayed and I prayed for a miracle. And then a call came in. I have 250 boxes of chicken. And then the truck that was supposed to deliver says, we're in the Tobin Bridge. And I tell you, since that day, I have never been left by myself. I have had abundance of food, been so blessed. But the problem is that the problem of community disparities and the, the fact that our communities have been so neglected over the years and the housing market has gone so high and communities of color continue to be forgotten when we're writing policies. That's something that we were already suffering before COVID-19. It just it made everything much worse. So right now, in addition to the food distribution, we're trying to figure out how are we 
protected people from not sleeping outside during the pandemic. Because right now we have landlords using harassment, illegal fee for any late payments or any repairs. And people are afraid because I work in a community of a lot of immigrants, a lot of undocumented people, and a lot of people that are afraid of authority, especially when they see, you know, police officers abusing their power, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Gladys Vega of the Chelsea Collaborative and Monica Cannon-Grant of Violence in Boston. We're discussing local activism and on-the-ground organizing. Much of it led by the two of them. Uh, Monica, you've said you have to protest with a purpose, that uh, these protests have been purposeful, that you've been amazed to see the response, but it appears to be moving towards some policy. I have to ask you about the Senate passing the first part of the police reform bill. The House has yet to hear it. There will be public comment on the, when the House hears it, there was supposed to be some with the Senate, but that didn't happen. Um, how are you feeling about what we hear as the the initial parts of this bill? I mean, there's a long way to go before the final, but still. So that bill wasn't what activists were fighting for. Um, and the legislators who put forth the bill didn't talk to the community or, to be more specific, Black folks. People are capitalizing on this moment and call themselves advocating for our community without talking to us. And that bill is a reflection of it. Everything in that bill is so watered down and ineffective that there's really no wins there. They're not getting rid of qualified immunity. Chokeholding was already banned. If I don't know if people were paying attention, but maybe a few weeks ago, Chief Gross announced that they were taking on these eight points of this campaign and chokeholding was one of those things. It was already something that was restricted. And so that would be the eight can't wait campaign that's sponsored by Campaign Zero of Black Lives Matter. Continue. Right. And so mm-hmm. he they agreed to take on the eight can't wait. So this legislation really didn't do much. And so my pushback to legislators is please stop saying you're advocating for black lives when you're not talking to black people. In regards to the work that needs to happen and and pushing with a purpose, and I'll give you an example. While I've been protesting, I've also been on this legislation tour with Emerald Gardner, who is the daughter of Eric Gardner, and Angie Kearse, who is the widow of Andrew Kearse. They were both killed by New York Police Department. The chokehold law, the Eric Gardner law was passed in the state of New York. Hands down. It was just, it was passed. We advocated. We had conversations. I organized a Zoom call that included Senator uh, Elizabeth Warren, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and Senator Gillibrand, as well as Mike Blake. We had a conversation. The survivors were able to talk to legislators directly, state what they wanted to happen, and it happened. That's how you protest with a purpose. Yet the protest is one piece. You're highlighting what's happening. Just like people writing Black Lives Matter on the ground is one piece of the revolution. Everybody has a part to play. And so the other piece is fighting for this legislation, but also pushing for funding. Legislation is another thing that's going to take time, and it hasn't stopped police departments from killing Black people Mm. because officers are still using chokeholds and still putting their knee in people's neck, even though George Floyd was killed on camera with four officers surrounding him watching. And so I need people to understand that protesting is the voice of the unheard. Uh, Funding, when people say defund the police department, that's exactly what they mean. Why? The history of the police department was never to protect and serve black people. It was to catch and return slaves. The other piece is, is the system of white supremacy that police departments across this country are plagued with is not going to go away by one piece of legislation. We have to continuously apply pressure. And that's what protesting does. And so 
I think you protest, you sit down, you get legislation passed, and you advocate for funding because I also run a nonprofit. Every year we're fighting for funding to pay our people and hire people to continuously serve our community. Okay. Um, Similar to Monica Cannon Grant's uh, issue with this police bill and what needs to be happening in terms of funding of nonprofits and support and hearing from the folks who are really on the ground, I wonder, Gladys Vega, if you were consulted uh, when the governor proposed these new tests that will run through mid-August, specifically in communities where uh, Latinx uh, people live, and Chelsea is one of those. So they've got a new round of testing going over there that's supposed to help to alleviate some of the issues with regard to the pandemic spread. How do you feel about that testing? Is that something that your organization is able to, you know, get that information out to the people that you serve? I have never been a fan of the government that we have now, but to my surprise, I reached out to Mara Hilly and I said, our governor needs to do more testing and whatever they're doing that are not doing enough is not good enough for the Chelsea members of our community. And then I got a phone call and they said that they will lift whatever they, they were not able to do. It was incredible for me that I called and they responded. But at the beginning, we were yelling and screaming and crying for help and we were not being heard. But then we were able to get their attention because of the magnitude of the pandemic, the numbers that mm-hmm. were they continue to grow. And I'm in the front line doing this work. I am talking to people. I identified 389 COVID-19 people in our line of food. So if I have 389 people that I have identified, that means that we don't have 2,000. We probably have 5,000, 6,000 people infected, and that is why the spread continues to be larger. But in addition to that, in a community like Chelsea or community like Roxbury, Dorchester, the cost of living has been so high that it forces people to live in overcrowded conditions. That is why we're working on the right to counsel bill. The right to counsel is this whole idea that in Massachusetts, a tenant needs to have some type of legal representation. So we've been also working in these type of policies in order for people to have access to justice. So, you know, most people will hear these conversations with the two of you and and have a better understanding of what community organizing is all about and the hard work that it takes. So I want to ask both of you, what's the biggest misconception about the work that you're doing and what do you really want people to understand? Monica? I've been hearing a lot of people say COVID caused this problem, and my pushback is COVID exacerbated pre-existing issues. And so we haven't really dealt with the fact that some of our communities that are exposed to poverty the most were already struggling, and this pandemic has exacerbated it. And I would very well love to sit in my house and, and say, hey, let somebody else handle it. But it's almost like when you're a person that's known for helping your community, people lean on you and they look to you for support. Um, I had volunteers who I then had to still provide food for and help pay their bills. And so a lot of the people are helping have some of the same disparities and needs as the people that we are helping. And I think that's one thing people don't realize. It's like you they feed the community all day and then they still need food themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Gladys, what what is the biggest misconception about the, the work that you're doing and, and what do you want people to understand? So I would have to agree with Monica. I have been saying from the beginning that the problems in Chelsea, the problems in community of colors is neglected. I feel that a lot of the issues that we have had in terms of gentrification, it was because it was more important to increase tax base and, and bring businesses and to take care of the residents that were already here. 
we have to have plans that involve community residents that would enhance the quality of life, the quality of jobs, allowing people to basically get the skills to get from three jobs to one good paying job. The pandemic highlighted the desperate measures that people were facing on an ongoing basis. So one last question to the two of you. This is hard work. It's heart work as well, but it's pretty much 24-7. What do each of you do to hold yourselves up in the low moments? Gladys. After having a 16-hour day job, like the ones that I've been having since uh, March 5th, I go home and I see this my, my grandkids, and that highlights my day. In the low moments, I'm a strong woman of color, but I, I cry and I, and I get my, my doubts and I think my community inspires me to continue. And I don't never walk away knowing that if it wasn't for the work that we are doing, people would not get fed. People would not have hope. People would not get $250, you know, little stipend that we give them for, for food. So I, I think that those things are the ones that keep me going. And that, that is what inspires me every day to uh, not to slow down and continue. We need to be better human beings and we need to have unconditional love for each other and to everyone. Monica? Um, Self-care, I think, is something that we really are good at saying and horrible at. And so at the beginning, I was just really horrible at it. But now I just take time away from this work and go spend time with my family and my husband and my children. Um, And I turn off my phone and I I just make sure that in those moments, I'm just spending time with them. Um, I have a one-year-old, and so him being able to play and grow and do all the things is how I try to not like get exhausted from this work. But I think what people need to understand is, is no amount of self-care can can change the fact that every day I wake up and I'm a black mom, I got four sons, two daughters, and the conversations that I am having with my children before they leave leave the house is different than a lot of families. And so regardless of how much self-care that I take, I always have to worry. And that is just the reality of it. Okay. I thank you both for joining me. Thank you for having us on your show. Thank you for having me. Gladys Vega is the executive director of the Chelsea Collaborative. Monica Cannon-Grant is a Boston activist and founder of the organization Violence in Boston. Well, that's it for this week's show. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of WGBH, produced by Hannah Ubele and engineered by Dave Goodman. Rebecca Tauber is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.